Good morning. It is a blessing and a privilege to be in front of you this morning and share with you what God's Word. Um, first, let's take a chance to pray. Ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We've sung of your grace this morning, and we have experienced your grace if we know the Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, please bless us this morning as we look at your word. Bless me as I, as I bring your word to your people. Uh, protect my words that I would explain clearly what it is that you have said in your truth. Uh, but also, Lord, may you strengthen us and encourage us in our great, great gift of love. Love for one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. People can be hard to deal with sometimes. Frankly, there's some kids here who are excited for summer, and it's not just because the schedule changes and there's no more homework. Some of you kids are excited to not have to go to school anymore because there are some kids that you have trouble with trouble dealing with in your class, and you would like three months break without having to put up with that person. Frankly, us adults, we understand the same dynamic, right? Like, you can have a sense of excitement that someone else was taken off of your project and assigned to another one because they're just difficult to deal with, right? Maybe that same summer break has some of us worried because when the kids go off, that is the break. And when the kids come home, and they're home all day for the summer, that's the relationship that's difficult to deal with. People are difficult to deal with. Maybe you have someone like this in your life. Let's call him Jason. Jason is pushy, abrasive, and rude. Now, we know that we're supposed to be patient, and we know that we're supposed to be kind. As Christians, we try to keep showing love. But frankly, we can get tired of dealing with all the drama. Our efforts to be kind start to become efforts to appear kind. We put on a smile, even if it's strained, even if we are stewing inside. But when Jason isn't around, it seems natural for you to tell others what makes him so difficult to deal with, especially when they know what you mean. So when he makes another one of his comments, you all start exchanging knowing looks. Uh-huh. Jason again. When Jason finally has some difficulty of his own, you kind of notice that you have a little bit of happiness in your heart. Like he's finally getting what he deserves. Whether you'd admit it or not. When he recognized for a job well done, there's times where you feel a sense of injustice. Your contribution shouldn't be ignored. Why should he get all of the credit? When you work with people, 
efforts at showing kindness can be stretched. If I can repurpose a great line from Bilbo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings, your love feels like it's been stretched like too little butter over too much bread. Right? Like you're just being expected to do more than what any person really can. I mean, honestly, wouldn't anybody have trouble with this guy? In our passage today, the Apostle Peter sets out to deal with these kinds of relational strains. But his focus is not primarily in school, the workplace, but in the church. Because people can be hard to get along with, even if they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to open our Bibles this morning, if you have them. First uh, Peter chapter 1. Terry so wonderfully read uh, our passage of Scripture to us. Uh, we will be looking at verses 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, through chapter 2, verse 3. And this morning, what I'm hopeful that you will see from this text is that we need to love deeply. We need to love deeply by longing desperately for the gospel. We need to love deeply by longing desperately for the gospel. Before we jump into the particulars of the text, I'd like to give you a little overview, because the passage that I have this morning is actually divided by a chapter break. And most people, uh, commentators are divided as to whether they would handle this as two separate passages or one big passage. The guy who put in the chapter breaks in our Bibles, he decided it was two separate ones. That's why he put chapter two where it is. Uh, I would have loved to have been back in the 13th century and persuaded him that he should have put it beginning at verse 4. Because I think a thought that has been started in, in what Pastor Chad preached to us last week, that cues up then a new thought into 22, continues on into 3. And there's a couple of features in this text I want you to notice with your Bible open. First, there are two commands. The first command is at the end of verse 22, when he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the first command. The second command in our passage is in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, long for the pure spiritual milk. And the translators of the ESV helped me out. They alliterated uh, we've got love and long, right? These are the two commands in the text. And I don't think that they're independent from each other. And I'm going to try to convince you of that this morning. In fact, what I'm going to say is in order for you to be able to love one another earnestly, you have to be able to long for the gospel, to long for the word, to long for what Peter says here in his word picture, the pure spiritual milk. So I think everything in the passage is built around these two commands, to love and to long. So that's where our outline is going to be 
Pretty simple this morning. Love deeply, long desperately, and live differently. Okay? First here, love deeply. If you look at verse 22, and I'll read it here for you. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. First he says, love one another earnestly. When we are to love earnestly, some, some translators would say it means love constantly, like love without end. Others would say they put the emphasis more on love fervently, like just how much you should love someone. And I don't think we need to split it. English doesn't have a really good word that puts the two thoughts together, but we have a, we have a conjunction called and, so I'm going to use that this morning. It's saying that we are to love each other constantly and we are to love each other fervently. That's the reason I picked the word deeply. Because I think, frankly, with someone like Jason, you can start out really well, and then after a while, it fizzles. Or you can do really well to plod along. You're consistent, but particularly half-hearted in your effort. Like one, one is like that exercise program or maybe that whole pile of exercise programs and all that exercise equipment you have in your garage where you got really excited about it for a month. And then the graveyard of exercise equipment testifies to the fact that your zeal for that particular program petered out. The other side is something like brushing your teeth, right? Like it's something you do every day. You're very consistent. Children, be consistent. But it's not like you wake up in the morning like, oh, I can't wait to brush my teeth. Right? Like it's, it's something you do, but kind of whatever. And frankly, our love can gravitate toward one of those two poles, Either we're just in a fast burst of zeal. I'm going to love this person. Or I'm going to love this person. And a steady plot each day, but half-hearted. The word earnestly rolls all of this up into one. That we need to love consistently, but also fervently. Also, our love needs to be purely motivated. Frankly, if you and I think about the way we love, sometimes our motives are mixed. Why do I love this person? Is it because of what I get out of the relationship? Because they're not given a lot. He says here in our verse, we're to love one another from a pure heart. I think that's where I get this thought um, purely motivated. We're also to love, but have a genuine love, a sincere love, the way he calls it here, a sincere brotherly love. And it's supposed to be affectionate. 
Peter picks a particular word that means brotherly love, like, like family love. And if you have a bad family, don't let that taint the, the meaning of this word. This is brotherhood the way brotherhood's supposed to be. Maybe not brotherhood the way you had brotherhood when you were growing up. So this is the kind of love that Peter is calling his readers to. But the fact of the matter is, we have so much working against this kind of love in our lives. Like Peter's readers, we're faced with all sorts of difficulties and trials, like he mentions in chapter 1, verse 6. We're tempted to sin by our very own passions, like he mentions in chapter 2 and verse 11. We are very often treated unjustly, like Peter tells his readers they are in chapter 2 and verse 19. Frankly, we come to the gospel with a history of baggage and sinful past, like Peter remarks about in chapter 4 and verse 3. And then if you've got your Bibles there, just flip over to the next page, uh, because there's a command that he gives that's almost identical to the one that we have in our passage, chapter 4 and verse 8. Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly. Same word that we've been talking about. Since love covers a multitude of sins. But what happens when we have love fatigue? When we get too tired for love to cover it? What happens when we get irritated by the littlest remark, by the slightest look? Frankly, we run out of love. Our love can be strained in all sorts of ways within the church. Clashing personalities in a Bible study. Disagreement about procedure in a church meeting. Minor areas of doctrine that don't really affect the direction of the church. Who gets to lead the group? The last year and a half, there have been tensions in every church that I have interacted with about COVID protocols. How should we handle what the state says? How should we handle what the church needs to do? There can be issues between church members about church leaders. There can be issues about, between church leaders about church members. They can be discussed openly in the church foyer. They can be whispered about in the church parking lot. They can be posted in block letters on Facebook. When our love is strained, it starts to show cracks. Peter points out, I think, what are cracks in strained love in chapter 2 and verse 1 when he says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like, First, here, let me give a qualification to this whole sermon. Parker's Lake Baptist Church, I love you, and I know that you love me. 
I've been a member of this church since 2004. And I am so grateful that I get to call you my home church. Uh, I, I, I love you with a brotherly affection, and I miss you dearly when we have been away. You do what this passage says very well. You love one another earnestly. And I think Peter, in writing to the churches he was writing to, too, would have said something similar. As we talk about the things that I'm going to share here in this verse, I just want you to understand that I am encouraging you to press on in what you are doing very well. But do you see that Peter here uses the word all three times in our verse? Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. I think his point is to say, of any kind, get rid of it. He's not saying, 80%, good job, guys. Passing grades, solid, solid marks on the love. But he's saying, Anything that is contrary to the earnest love I'm calling you to, get rid of it. Even a smidgen of it, even a hint of it, get rid of it. Get rid of it. There's something here, even for a church, that really does love one another. Because they're they're all relationships. I should say all relationships have stress cracks. There's places where love is calling us to love people who are unlovable. And frankly, these kinds of things show up when we reach the end of the butter and there's still more bread. Instead of being genuine, we can hinder others from knowing the truth. And make ourselves appear better than we really are. That's deceit and hypocrisy, like you mentioned in this verse. Instead of being affectionate, we can find joy in other people's difficulties. Because we're finding, huh? Yeah, you were talking big talk, but now you're finally getting what you deserve. Instead of being purely motivated, we can resent people because of what they have. That's envy like what he's talking about here. Instead of being earnest in our love, we can say things that make others look bad. That's slander. And don't just think that slander means saying false things about people. It's highlighting bad things about people so they look bad before others. Frankly, when I read this list and I start to ponder what it is that, that, that Peter is telling them to put off and what it is that he's been telling them to do, to love deeply, I recognize that there's lots of ways that the love I have for others doesn't meet up. It doesn't match. It either doesn't last Or it doesn't have any life in it. Half-hearted. 
And this is where I think the connection comes between the two commands we have in our passage. We're not only supposed to love deeply, but we're also supposed to long desperately. And I get that phrase from chapter 2 and verse 2 when Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like newborn infants, long. I, I wish we could like restructure the sentence so that it wouldn't sound like he was saying, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. It's a command. They put a comma in, but it's hard to read it sometimes. So maybe we could read it this way. Long for the pure spiritual milk like newborn infants. It's a command. Be hungry. The NIV says crave. I like that. Crave the pure spiritual milk. And then inevitably there's a question that arises like, what, what, milk? Uh, Peter, I'm not getting it. Well, there's actually three ways that Peter talks about the gospel in this passage. And like any good writer, he switches things up. In fact, my coworker Matt would tease me all the time about how I mix metaphors. And I would tell him, well, it's apostolic. Because Peter and Paul and John and all the rest of them love to pile one metaphor on top of another on top of another. Again, our passage, we've got a pile of them. So, kids, I'm going to need some help here. Stay right where you're at. What is this? Kids? What is it? Sponge. What's it for? Cleaning. Like cleaning a pot, cleaning a sink, right? What are these? Seeds, marigold seeds, what are they for? You big kids can answer too. Uh Uh-huh, what's that? Growing flowers, planting something that will grow. What's this? Baby bottle. You especially pointed that out, right? Little one in the house. What's it for? Feeding the baby, right? If you don't have a sponge, the pot doesn't get cleaned, right? If you don't have the seeds, nothing grows. And if you don't have the milk, then the baby will lack for nutrition. Um, praise God that in a place like America, very few of us have seen real children starving of nutrition. Um, But when when you see a little one that's craving, desperately crying for nourishment, I think you start to feel the force of Peter's words. So what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to look at this, uh, and I'm going to try to highlight each of these three ways that Peter talks about the gospel. So the first we're going to see in chapter 
1 and verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. So the first way he talks about the gospel, I think, is the truth. And I don't think he's talking about the truth generally. And there's reasons for that. First, like Pastor Chad preached to us last week, uh, he mentions at the end of verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Like there was a time where you didn't know something, and now there's a time where you do know it. You used to be ignorant, but now you know. And that's actually the word as well that he ends up using at the very beginning of verse 18. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, not by perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He uses this picture of obeying the truth and having it purify your soul. I don't think he's talking about obedience generally because of what he says in chapter 1 and verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. When he's talking about obeying the truth, what he's saying is, we obey Jesus as Lord. He says, believe, and we believe. He says, repent, and we repent. He's talking about conversion here. He's talking about someone moving from having not known the truth about Jesus to now knowing the truth about Jesus. And he says, it's like purification. He's using all sorts of Old Testament language, like the, 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 like the lamb that we just read about, whose sacrifice purifies sin. He's using language like clean and unclean because the law was all about being able to approach God only if you were cleansed. And so he uses this, this simple word, truth, to describe the gospel truth, the message of Jesus' death, and then also his resurrection, which we'll get to in a minute, for the sake of our sin, so that we can have our sins cleansed, purified. The gospel cleanses our souls. It, just pointing the word out here, having purified your souls. The gospel is about doing an internal work, not just an external work. God isn't about cleaning up people on the outside. He's about cleaning them from the inside out. That's what the gospel does. It cleanses us and purifies our thoughts, our intentions, our emotions. It cleanses us from our sins. But it not only does that, the gospel also gives us new life. And he uses another metaphor here as we press on in reading. He, he re, we could read our command again. He says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord. Yes, generally he does mean, when he's quoting Isaiah 40 here, that all of the word of the Lord will remain. Like Jesus said, not a word of his will pass away. All of the words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. But there's like a blinking light right after his quotation that helps us understand he is speaking about the word of God and meaning the gospel when he says those words at the end of verse 25. And this word is the good news which was preached to you. He's saying that the gospel is the seed that brings new life. These seeds here are annuals. I'm not a particular green thumb. But I do know the difference between an annual and a perennial. Do you? An annual, you have to plant it every year, right? You plant those flowers in your yard. How many of you have been planting flowers in your yard? Right? Like there's a ton of you. That's what we love about spring. Plant the flowers in the pots. Plant the flowers in the bed. But for all of that effort you spend this year, it counts for nothing next year. Because it lasts for a year. Right? How many of you have been fertilizing your lawns, right? Like grass seed, weed be gone. Minnesotans can be particular about their lawns. But no one seeds their lawn as a long-term investment. Like I'm hoping for a 10 to 15% return on my investment of lawn seed and weed be gone. Nobody Flowers are beautiful, but they're for a time. A beautiful lawn is great, but don't expect it to last. And that's what this quotation from Isaiah is pulling forward is that everything will pass away. You will die, I will die. All flesh is like grass. We're not confronted very often with our mortality. But frankly, life only lasts so long. And then when he says, the glory, the glory of the grass is the flower. Everything about us as people on this earth will pass away too. All of the cars, all of the houses, all of the job success, all of the vacation spots. I'm not saying any of that is bad. Flowers are good, grass is good, but don't depend on them lasting forever. 
You can't hang everything on your lawn because it'll die. And so will most everything else in this world. But there is something that will last forever. And he tells us it's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ will last forever. Because the God who spoke this good news lasts forever. Right? God is living and abiding. So the word he speaks is living and abiding. And those who receive his word into their hearts are living and abiding forever. Right? Like the reason that you have hope if you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, of living forever is because his gospel is forever and you've received it in your soul. That's why he's saying this seed that's been planted in you is imperishable. This is an eternal perennial plant that will not die, it will not fade. The glory of this earth will fade. But there in verse 21, we read about a glory that will not fade. I'll I'll, I'll begin reading in verse 20. He, meaning Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. There is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Above the earth, on the earth, under the earth, everyone will recognize the enduring and everlasting glory of Jesus Christ. But this is a glory that you and I get to share because this glorious gospel has been planted in us and by faith we've received it, if we have received it. The verse ends by saying, so your faith and your hope are in God. Don't rely on yourself anymore. Recognize that everything has been provided in the death and resurrection of Jesus for you to have real and lasting and enduring value forever if you would just accept his word. So not only does the gospel cleanse our souls and give us new life, it also nourishes our spiritual growth. This is the baby bottle, guys. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I think everybody here, if they haven't experienced it themselves, has witnessed someone who's trying to rock a baby, waiting for mama to get back. Right? You know what I'm... Mommy's coming. Just wait a little longer. And there's this this shrill cry that an infant can give 
when they are wanting what only mama has, right? There's a singularity of purpose in that cry where this infant is saying, nothing will satisfy me but the milk, right? No amount of rocking and cooing is going to do it. There's a singularity of purpose. This child knows in its desperation that there's only one thing that will give it what it needs. There's only one thing that will lead it to be content. And that's milk. The picture here used of newborn infants shouldn't imply to you that the churches that Peter was writing to were all new converts. I don't think that the point was to say they were all brand new babies in Christ. I think it's to imply that we never grow out of our need for the gospel. Uh, you, the milk uh, of the word isn't something we grow out of. Actually, it's something we grow into. He says that you may grow up into salvation. When he's talking about salvation, he's, he's using the word future, right? And this isn't something new to us. We've seen this uh, already in our treatment of 1 Peter. Uh, in verse 5, he says, "...who by God's power are being saved through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time." Salvation is coming, and you're being guarded for it. In verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Like faith is holding on and waiting for the salvation that is to come. Again in verse 10, it was this salvation that was prophesied by the prophets. And then here again in verse 2. Those are all the times that salvation is mentioned in 1 Peter. It's not wrong for us as Christians to say, I am saved. Because the work is as good as done. It, Jesus died. He rose again. You are now God's children and a part of God's family. But Peter and the New Testament in general uses the word saved or salvation about that final day when God makes everything right. And that's what we're headed toward. If maturity was what we were trying to figure out in Paul's, in Peter's metaphor, maturity would be getting to the day when finally Jesus comes back. And all that we've been promised in salvation is realized. Until then, all of us, whether we've been a, a believer in Jesus for three days or for 30 years, are supposed to crave God's gospel like a baby craves milk. 
All right, so I've said there's this connection between these two commands. And I think it causes us, if we recognize it, to live differently. If you and I are not only believing the gospel past tense, I did believe the gospel, but I am craving the gospel daily, then I think it would bring transparency instead of hypocrisy. Right? The sins that we read of in chapter 2 and verse 1, um, the gospel brings cleansing. Right? The gospel brings cleansing. So my sin, I don't have to fear anymore that someone else sees it. Before God, I am clean by believing and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I no longer have to hide who I am before other people. I can be open. I don't have to put on a face and look good. Like, what family hasn't felt this tension when you're all yelling at each other to get in the car and get dressed and ready to go to church? Right? How you guys doing? Great. How's your week? But <laughs> like, he's smiling, but it's more of a glare than a smile. Is it because we're afraid of of, of saying that actually this morning we, we had a fight and got angry with each other. Um, there's all sorts of sins that can be hidden by trying to put on a front uh, to, to shift from being kind to appearing kind if we're talking about Christian love. And the environment of earnest Christian love, deep Christian love, if we really believe this gospel and that we have been cleansed, should free us to, to, to be transparent with our brothers and sisters. Like, nobody should know what's going on more than those of the same family, right? We, by Jesus Christ, have been made a part of the same family, Parker's Lake, so what will we keep from one another? That doesn't mean you have to share all of your dirty laundry with every member of Parker's Lake. But it does mean that you should have someone here in the church fellowship that you can be open with. When you're struggling with sin, when you've been overcome by sin, because you have a sure confidence in the gospel that you have been cleansed. And so, to use Peter's word, you're taking out the dirty laundry. Putting it away is what he says to hypocrisy. Get rid of it. We should be transparent with one another if we really are finding our craving satisfied by the truth of the gospel. But not only that, I think that if 
we are craving and finding our sustenance in the gospel, it's going to create an affectionate empathy. Uh, the, the, the sins here that he pointed out, malice uh, and envy. Malice is ill will. Like kind of getting upset in your heart. But rather, excuse me. Malice is when you get happy that someone else is facing difficulty. Like, <laughs> finally, they're getting their due. He kept talking and talking and talking about how good he was, and now he failed. Envy is, is almost the opposite. It's when someone has the success that you wish you had. When someone gets the position that you had been gunning for. When someone else has the opportunity that you wanted. Paul tells us as the church that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I think if we understand that we have been born again into the same family, again, the gospel message we've read about in this passage, then when we see someone, a brother or sister, succeeding where we've failed, we'll rejoice with them. We're free to do that now because it's no longer a competition. The family rises or falls together, right? We're not trying to gun it out with one another about who can be better or you got ahead of me or that's not fair. We'd have empathy with one another, but an affectionate empathy that says, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Or says, I am so happy for you. And, and the gospel, the message that we are born again into a new family, gives us the, the freedom to have that kind of empathy with one another. It also gives us a hope for change instead of slander. If indeed, he says, that by the gospel you can grow up into salvation, it means that we don't have to stay the same as we were, right? The whole idea of growth is progress. It, it, even the, the, the whole point of new birth, how radically different we can be because we have been given new life by God through his gospel. So when you see someone and their failures, their shortcomings, their sins, you don't have to call those out. You don't have to highlight them in front of everybody and say, did you see the way he did that? Or, oh yeah, him again. Isn't that the way it always is with him? You don't have to do that anymore because the gospel gives you the hope for real change. Yes, this person has his failures. 
Yes, this lady has her faults and sins. But the transforming power of the gospel can make them new. Can cause them to grow. So you don't have to put a highlight marker over every wrong that they do in slander. Instead, you can let it sit with God and you can pray that he would use the gospel in the same way he is using it in your life by God's grace. To give you new life and then cause you to grow in that life. And do you see that something I'd highlight here about the connection between these two commands is he said, we're to love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, right? And then what other people would put out is another passage that we should deal with next Sunday. He says, now as newborn babes, crave, and I'm going to say, crave the same gospel that gave you new birth. Right? The same thing that gave you new life is what will nourish you and strengthen you to love each other deeply. So you can hold out. You don't have to to lose hope in that relationship when that person just won't change because they can change, not in themselves. But God can change them through his gospel. And then if I could just say here, I think another way that the gospel, craving and finding our sustenance in the gospel can make us live differently is we exchange deceit for the truth. I was remarking as I was studying, that the word that he uses for pure spiritual milk, some Bibles would translate it unadulterated. Right? It, 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 means, it actually means guileless, if you're looking for an older term. Like, without craftiness or twistedness. It's actually the same word that he uses for deceit in verse 1. Only not that. So this is a milk that is not deceitful. If you're tracking with me. It doesn't have something stuck in that leaves it tainted. You know, how many recalls do they do at the grocery store because they find out that some product has been tainted and that whoever consumes it will be poisoned? So they start telling you on the news, sorry, there's been a recall on spinach, there's been a recall on milk. Because you you want the pure stuff, right? Something else in there besides what you bought off the shelf could harm you. And what, what the gospel holds out for us is, is, is the truth in its purity. We don't, have to, we don't have to hide the truth anymore. Could I just make a, a, a petition to you all? There, it's so hard to know what's true nowadays, right? Like all of us are so overwhelmed with 
Which, which newscaster do I listen to? Which channel do I turn in on? I, we all just kind of want to throw our hands up like, I don't even know what is true. I can tell you what is true. The gospel is true. There's lots of things you can't be sure about. But there is something that you can be sure about. Believe the truth about Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and all that it brings to those who believe in him. And let it transform who you are. Let it empower and enable you to love people beyond your ability. We're going to sing two songs after I finish speaking here. And one of them is the song, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. It says, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. My, my effort this morning has been to try to, to show to you that the tie that binds us in Christian love is the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. And when our love slackens, when our love is strained, we need to bind ourselves back up together with the gospel. We have been made a part of the same family. Not because of the blood that flows in us, but because of the blood that covers us. We are a brotherhood that has been purified by the same truth, that has been born again by the same imperishable seed, and has been nourished and is being nourished by the same spiritual milk. Let's crave the gospel desperately so that we can love one another deeply. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Oh, thank you for the, the gospel that is the good news unto salvation for everyone who believes. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here, and I assume there is, that doesn't yet know this truth. Like even Peter here at the end says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Lord, if there's someone here who has yet to taste the goodness of the Lord in the good news, please bring them to salvation today. For those of us, Lord, who, who find this craving in our hearts, I pray, Lord, that we would find our sustenance and our strength to love one another the way that you were calling us to in the gospel. Thank you for the message of salvation that we can share with one another in a platform like this. But Lord, I pray that this would be this would not only be the content of our conversations, but this would shape our conversations, our attitudes, our interactions, our relationships as a church body. Bless us, Lord. With this we pray. Amen.